The following audio is from Abner Creek Baptist Church. For more information, visit www.abnercreekbaptist.com. Well, if you have your copy of God's Word, open with me to the book of Luke. Luke 23 is where we'll be today. It's odd this week, going somewhere other than 1 Corinthians. We've been in 1 Corinthians so long. And uh, I told my wife last night that uh, I'm used to taking 12, 15 verses at a time. And this, this week we have one verse. And, uh, and out of that one verse, we're focusing really mostly on three words. And so it's been very different, um, different this week, but, uh, but good. I believe God has something great for us uh, here over these next seven weeks. Luke 23, and we're going to look at today uh, really verse 34. I'll probably read uh, a little bit more than that, but um, uh, we'll look at verse 34 together. In the, in the fall of 2013, just a few months ago, uh, the band A Great Big World released the song, Say Something. Uh, its lyrics tell the story of a breakup that's in progress. And uh, the, the person singing is in love still with this, this other person, but is not feeling that love returned and wants desperately for the person to say something, say anything to cause them to change their mind. And it is a sad song. Uh, but, but it was released and, and quickly resonated, I believe, with the generation. Its lyrics say this, say something, I'm giving up on you. I'll be the one if you want me to. Uh, anywhere I would have followed you, say something, I'm giving up on you. Um, that, that song became very popular. Christina Aguilera noticed it and, and approached the guys, and they re-recorded it together, and it, it climbed the charts and, and got to the top, and, and I believe it did so because those lyrics resonate with an entire generation that is feeling unloved, that is feeling unloved and unwanted and wants somehow, some way to uh, f- feel that love that they're ready to give reciprocated to them. Well, I, I believe this is, um, this is true not only of a culture that's looking for love from someone else. I think this is true of those that have grown up in and around the church. I think somehow, some way, over the years, there's an entire generation that is um, fluent in the language of the church. They know the stories. They, they know even that Jesus died and that he was raised they know that some way that that is an expression of love, possibly from God, but they don't feel as if it is love specifically for them. And many in this generation are walking away from the church. And I think many in this generation are probably saying things like, say something, say anything to me, God. Show me that you love me, because if you don't, God, I, I'm walking away. And they, and they just feel unloved. And I would tell you that if you're part of that generation, or even if you're not part of that generation, but you're beginning to feel that way and something's pulling you away and you just don't see how God has personally loved you, I want over these next seven weeks for us to look at the expression of God's love for you and for me expressed in the last seven words from Jesus on the cross. My hope is that we would get to the end of this Series and that your view would change. I want us over these next seven weeks to listen to the cross. And in listening to the cross, as we head toward Easter this year, in listening to the cross, we're going to hear sounds. We're going to hear the sounds of, ang- of the angry and the frenzied mob uh, as they're 
crying out to crucify him, crucify him. We're going to hear the the sound of Pilate trying to deflect responsibility and say, his blood be upon you as he washes his hands and tries to pass the blame to, uh, to the Jewish people. We're going to hear the leather that comes down across the back of Jesus. We're going to hear the ugly cruelty of the Roman soldiers as they mock him. We're going to hear the steel on steel of hammer on nail as they drive those through the wrists and through the feet of Jesus. We're going to hear the deep thud of the cross finding its place in the hole in the earth. We're going to hear the sobbing of a mother, the insults of the thieves that were crucified with him. We're going to hear the jeering of the crowd. We're going to hear the arrogant mockery of the religious leaders who stand smugly at the back of the crowd and claim that he's getting what he deserves. If he's really who he says he is, let him come down. We will even hear the moments of grace as Soldiers come to believe truly he was the Son of God. We will hear those moments of grace as one of those thieves become repentant. We will hear the screams as the sky turns black and the earth begins to shake and the veil is torn from top to bottom in the temple. We will hear all of that, but We will not see love anywhere displayed more strongly than when we listen to these words of our Savior as he is crucified for us. I want you to come to the place when you look at Christ, and you look at his cross, that you you, you don't feel the need to plead with him, to say something, God, say something, just say anything so that I'll know I'm loved. But instead, I want you to come to this and look back at the cross and look at Jesus and and say, nobody's ever loved me like that. Nobody will ever, ever again love me like that. But Jesus loves me that way. I want us to come as we prepare our hearts for Easter. And I want us, when we go into that Easter Sunday, for our hearts to be full knowing that we have been loved by a God who really had no reason in us to love us. Let's read this passage together. You can follow along with me, Luke 23. Uh, and I'm going to begin in verse 32. I don't know if you guys have that on the, on the screen or not, but um, let me just begin there and give you some background. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him. And the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments, and the people stood by watching. But the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, the chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. And there was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. This morning I want to focus on really three words in this passage together. And it's those three words, Father, forgive them. And I want us to start with that last word, go to the first word, and end with that middle word as we walk through this together. First, let's look at that word, them. Jesus knows what it's like to be hurt and to be wronged. 
You need to hear that. You need to know that. This, that the crucifixion was not just an out-of-the-ordinary moment in his life. This was how he had been treated from day one. Don't we read in Scripture that he, while he's the very one who created the world, when he came into the world, they didn't even recognize him. That he lived as one who they saw nothing in, no form of beauty that they should desire. Isaiah 53, verses 2 through 3, tells us that he had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Think about that. The Lord of glory, creator of the world, the universe, the very people that rejected him. At his birth, there was no room for him in the end. Shortly after his birth, a jealous king, Herod, tried to kill him. We don't know much about his childhood, but we can assume that in his childhood he faced more of the same. In fact, we know that it wasn't until after he was crucified and resurrected that many of his own family members believed in him. They ridiculed him. They scoffed at him. At one point in his ministry, they go out to seize him because they, they say he's out of his mind and they want to bring him in because he's become an embarrassment to them. As soon as he began his ministry, as soon as he began his ministry, a mob tried to seize him and take him out and stone him, but the Bible says that he escaped from them, that he went right through them, he went through their midst. The scribes spread rumors that he was demon-possessed. The Pharisees had him followed everywhere he went, just hoping, hoping that they could catch him in some slip-up in some way. They were dogging every step that he took, trying to prove him wrong. And now it comes to this. His entire life he had been mistreated and disrespected, and now it comes to this. He's praying by himself in a garden, minding his own business, when one of his own followers brings a cohort, an army, if you will, into that garden, betrays Jesus by kissing him, a greeting in the day, and they arrest him and they take him away and they beat him and they nail him to a cross. Jesus knows what it's like to be hurt and wronged. But I want you to see, I want you to look, when we say, Father, when he says, Father, forgive them, how does he respond? How did he respond in his entire ministry? How did he respond when he was mistreated? How does he respond in this moment? Did he ask God in this moment as he's hanging on that cross, does he ask God, God, I've had enough, destroy them? No. He could have. He could have. The one who created the world and had lived in eternity with the worship of angels, meeting every whim that he wanted, he could have, but he doesn't. We would understand, wouldn't we? When you and I are mistreated, we would, we would understand this behavior because we have so often flown off the handle and just taken somebody's head off because we've been slightly mistreated, haven't we? Jesus doesn't do this. Well, in this moment, does he cry for pity? Does he, does he look from the cross at those who are mocking him and yelling at him? Does he look and he say, why are you doing this to me? What have I done to you? Why? Why are you doing this? We would understand this as well. 
What parent in the room has not had a child say to them, it's not fair, you must hate me. Jesus in this moment doesn't cry for pity. Does he seek to be rescued? He doesn't seek to be rescued because he had already settled that issue. In John 12 we read that that he, he doesn't try to escape from this moment because he knew that this was the moment for which he came. So how does he respond in this moment when he is finally being mistreated to the point of culmination, crescendo? Well, in this moment, instead of being self-focused, Jesus was utterly others-focused. In the Sermon on the Mount, he had told them, You've heard that it said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And Jesus, while he was on the Sermon on the Mount, must have, there must have been those in the crowd that thought, well, that sounds good. That's easy for a preacher to stand on a mountain and tell us to do. It would be another thing if he would actually do that. And in just a little bit of time, they got to witness him do that. On the Sermon on that mountain, he said it with his words. On the Sermon on that mountain, he said it with his actions. Well, who was in the crowd that day? When we look at this word, them, who is he focused on? Who's there? Well, I want you to picture this, if you will. I want you to think of the cross there on the hill, and I want you to think of the perspective of Jesus. And I want you to begin to look around and look and see who might be in the crowd. And this crowd is multi-layered. Jesus can turn to his left and to his right, and he can see these two thieves on either side, and they're hurling insults at him. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He looks down from those thieves, and he looks and he sees these soldiers at the foot of the cross, and they're gambling for his clothing, and they're mocking him, and he's, he just came from them, beating him to a bloody mess. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. He looks beyond the soldiers and he begins to look at the crowd. And he looks at this crowd who who had flocked to him and and just a week before had cried, Hosanna! And celebrated his coming. And now they cry, Crucify him! And Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. He looks over the heads of those who the religious leaders have stirred into a frenzy, and he sees those religious leaders beyond them, those that had dogged him at every step. And while at other times he had very harsh words for them, in this moment he looks at them knowing that they have led this charge, and he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they're doing. He looks just beyond those, and he can't see them anymore over the heads of the religious leaders because they have all fled. And he sees the the trail of his disciples as as they have ran away and abandoned him and betrayed him and denied even knowing him. And he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He looks beyond that trail and that time and that, that era for the God who is, exists outside of time. And he looks down through the halls of history and he sees every single believer who would ever come to believe and he sees them and he sees their sin and he says, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. And the question that I want to ask you today is, do you understand? Are you here today seeing that you in your own sin are one that was there in that day when Jesus prayed, Father, 
forgive them. They know not what they do. I don't know if you've ever thought about that before, that, you've, that your sin, that before you were born, before you were ever living your life, living however you wanted to live and pursuing what you wanted to pursue, that in this moment in history, this one that has so shaped world history, prayed for you. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. See, it was your sin that held him there. It was my sin that held him there. And this is not some cheesy lyric from a song that when he was on the cross, you were on his mind. But there is a reality here that in this moment, when he could have been utterly self-focused, instead he's others-focused. And yes, ultimately he's focused on the glory of God and redeeming a people for God. But in this moment, he's praying for specific individuals and our you in that group called them. Now, how does it make you feel uh, when, I, when I say that, when you hear me say that it was your sins that held him there? Do you see yourself as, in this moment as really a good person and there's nothing you've ever done that would deserve that, that would merit that? It's offensive to you that this preacher would stand here and say that, that a man had to die in history to take your place. Or maybe you're here in this room and it's not offensive to you, but it's token to you. And you know that you're pretty much a good person, but yeah, there are times when you sin and in those moments you're glad that Jesus is willing to forgive you in those moments. Or are you here today with an understanding that you don't deserve this kind of love? That you have offended Him, His righteousness, His holiness, and you deserve to be punished, to be separated from God, to be eternally apart from Him. And you come to this and you look at this act and you see Him in this moment when He says, Father, forgive them. And it makes you just almost want to weep to say, what undeserved love is this? Some of you here today, you're you're struggling with forgiving somebody. You're in this moment, and, and someone has hurt you. They have offended you. And, and you need to hear me say that Jesus understands what it's like to be hurt and offended. And you need to look at the cross and see his offense, his hurt. I don't know yours, but his offense, his, his hurt, I can promise you, is greater than yours. You need to see. You need to hear that. You need to know that he knows that. And I want to say something to you. Some of you are here today and you're struggling with being able to forgive someone who's hurt you. I would just say to this, to the extent that you understand what you have been forgiven of is the extent to which you will be willing to forgive others. If you'll come to the place where you will let your mind saturate in the fact that your sin was so offensive that it sent Jesus to the cross. If you'll just ponder that for a while, you will come to the place where, and you realize that you are forgiven in Christ, it will make forgiving others so much easier. You say to me, again, preacher, that's easy for a preacher to stand up there and say, but you don't know, you don't know what I've been through, you don't know how that person hurt me. And you're exactly right, and I don't presume to. I don't know. 
But based on this, I can tell you that he does. And for you to take that attitude, I don't mean this to be offensive, I don't mean for this to rub you the wrong way, but for you to take that attitude tells me that you're, you're not understanding of his hurt. That you don't know how he was offended. Jesus knows what it's like to be hurt. Them. Second word I want us to look at today is this, Father. Father. Jesus knows the, the greater sin is the one that's committed against the Father. While Jesus prays for the, for the Father to forgive them, not everyone in the crowd that day was instantly forgiven. I don't know if you've thought about that. Not everyone was forgiven. There were certainly those that were there that may have even heard those very words, but they weren't forgiven. Jesus is not here granting forgiveness. He's here praying that the Father would forgive them. And this is very different than lots of other times in his ministry while he walked on earth. When Jesus was walking and about the earth and doing his ministry, he said to a paralyzed man one time, your sins are forgiven you. He pronounced forgiveness for this man. The Pharisees heard it and got angry. To which Jesus said, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven or get up and walk? So you'll know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins while he's on the earth. I'll say to this man, get up and walk. And he proved his power over the man's paralyzed limbs to demonstrate to them that he also had power to forgive sins. He said the same thing to the woman who was caught in adultery, the, uh, the woman who anointed his feet at Simon's house. He, he did this multiple times. So why here in this moment, this is worth wrestling with, why in this moment now is he not simply pronouncing forgiveness on these that are crucifying him? I would tell you that it's this. In this moment, he's always been the God-man since he came to earth. He was, he was fully God and fully man, and he never stopped. He never ceased. While he was on the cross, he never ceased to be God-man. But here in this moment, he's in a new way becoming substitute for us. He's acting as our substitute. A.W. Pink says it this way. On the cross, he was no longer in the place of authority where he might exercise his own divine prerogatives. Therefore, he takes the position of a suppliant. A suppliant is just a mere person who's asking someone in authority, begging them, pleading with them, humbly for something. And Jesus here, who is eternally co-equal with God, puts himself voluntarily in a position of submission so that he might take our place. He understands that in this moment, his greater offense is not what they're doing to him, but instead he understands that our biggest issue is not with him, but it is with God. It is with the Father. Jesus knew it was the Father's holiness that had been offended. He also knew that such an offense could not simply be pronounced forgiven. God's holiness demanded justice. A price would have to be paid. And in knowing that, Jesus is here laying down his divine rights and completely identifying with his people. Philippians 2, verses 5 through 8 say this. Though he was in the form of God, 
the very essence of God. Well, he was in the form of God. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or hoarded or held onto. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in the human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So the reason he's here not pronouncing forgiveness is because he's coming to rescue us and doing what only he could do. There's a need for us to forgive those who wrong us. But those who wrong us, their ultimate issue is not with us. Their ultimate issue is with God. And we can live our lives in such a way that we're always looking out for our rights and we're never humbling ourselves and we're always out to, hey, if somebody gets me, you better believe I'm going to get them. I'm pulling that Medea on them. Somebody gets you, you better get them before they get gone, right? If we live our lives that way, it is the exact opposite of what we see here in Jesus. We may never get the opportunity to hear some people say they're sorry. If we've been forgiven, though, by God, we of all people should refuse to harbor bitterness and anger and ill will toward them. And at the same time, follow the example of Jesus and pray, God, please grant them mercy. God, it's not about them coming to me and things being made right with me because, God, in the end, they're not going to face me. Their issues with you. And, God, I love you and have been forgiven by you. Therefore, I'm going to pray for them. God, would you be merciful on my enemy? Would you save them before it's too late? This was Jesus in this moment, putting his own needs down, looking at the needs of others, meeting the need that they could not meet on their own and taking up their issue with the Father. And the last word I want us to look at today is the word forgive. Jesus did what only he could do to make forgiveness possible. Jesus not only asked the Father to forgive them, but he opened the door through which that forgiveness would even be possible. Colossians 1, 13 and 14 says, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Tell me, who besides Jesus was qualified to open that door to bring about forgiveness? Because it would require somebody that could say that they had never sinned, that they were completely innocent and righteous, And who besides Jesus has ever filled that role? Who could ever put that on the resume besides Jesus? It would also require someone who could fully represent God. And God in His mercy sends His own Son to become man, to live that righteous life, so that He had no sin of His own that would take Him to the cross, and in an act of mercy would then step in front of those who deserve that cross putting himself there, taking their punishment, and giving them his righteousness. Who could open that door besides Jesus? Jesus knew exactly what was happening and why he was on the cross. It was in view of the blood that he was shedding and was about to shed that he prayed, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Do you understand that? 
He's on that cross, and part of the reason that he's not demanding to come down and wanting rescue is because he looks out at his hands, and he sees the blood drip, and I believe he's looking at the blood fall from his hands, and he understands that he's taking punishment, and the only way that the Father can forgive them is if this happens. And so he's looking at this blood, viewing his sacrifice, and saying, Father, in view of this, forgive them. Hebrews 9.22 says, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no, no forgiveness of sins. He wasn't only praying without the ability to do anything about it. Instead, he's in this moment not only asking the question, but also providing the answer. How many times have you gotten bad news from someone and said, I wish I could do something for you. Is there anything that, that you need? And they say, just, just pray for us. In that moment, you know that prayer is a wonderful thing and you will gladly pray for them and you will, you will go to the throne for them and you will pray for them, but you wish that there was something else that you could do. You wish you could step in and remove the disease, remove the problem, but you can't. Your hands are tied. You have no power to fix it. But in this moment, the very one who's also praying is the one who has the power to fix it. And he's doing both. Jesus in this moment does everything. He does what only He could do to make forgiveness possible. Only Jesus could do that. He is exclusively the way to God. There is no amount of good works. There is no amount of enlightenment or meditation. There is nothing that can achieve this. The infinite holiness of God has been offended. Therefore, only a completely holy sacrifice would suffice. I want to ask you this. Are you fully aware? Are you fully aware of your sin against Him? The chances are you're not. And I'm not saying that smugly. Chances are I'm not. In fact, I know I'm not. Because the reality is, just as these who were crucifying Him did not know what they were doing was wrong, and they didn't think about it. Just think about it. The soldiers mocked him and, and, and drove nails through his hands and his feet. And they were just used to it. They didn't realize who they were crucifying. They didn't realize the severity of their sin. And just like them, you and I have committed all sorts of sins that we know nothing about. You know the sins that you've committed and maybe you have felt guilt over those and you believe that, yes, those are the ones that Jesus has forgiven you for. But are you aware of the sins that you don't even know that you've committed, that you've committed, that still need to be paid for? Aren't you glad that in that moment Jesus provides the solution even for those? Are you aware that he has put aside his, his own offenses and prayed for you? Are you aware today that he has asked the Father to forgive you and that he's also made it possible? Are you glorying in that? Or are you smugly sitting out there saying, I wish God would tell me something that shows me he loves me? Or are you fully aware of what he's done to make it possible for you to be forgiven? You realize he didn't have to do this. 
We could have gotten what we deserved, but God in his mercy sent Christ and made a way. Let me close with this. It's a, it's a quote from Charles Spurgeon, one of the greatest preachers probably in history. Charles Spurgeon says this. I really like the word them. I really like the word them because it's big enough for me to crawl inside. Today, do you see yourself inside them? Have you crawled inside? If so, you will understand how he loves you. Let's pray together. Jesus, your grace is absolutely amazing. The fact that we stand here today and we sit in this room and for those of us who have been forgiven, we sometimes lose track of what it cost, what it took. We lose track of your humility. We lose track of your very love for us. God, it's amazing to see what you have done. God, I pray in this room, God, that you would just remind us and God, make our thoughts full with that. God, for those in this room that that have never crawled inside that word them, God, I pray today that in your mercy that you would bring them to life and God, that you would lead them to a faith and repentance, crawl inside them and that they might be a part of whom you prayed for on that day. God, would you in your mercy save people in this room today? God, would you in your grace continue to love us, not for our own glory, not because there's anything in us that's worthy of love, but God, so that we might in turn return that love to you. You are all together glorious. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. My prayer is through this series that, um, that there might be people in this room that, that, that have never looked at the actions and the words of Jesus here and received personally his act on your behalf. I'm praying that there be people that are lost every week in this room if you're here today, welcome. This is, this, is not, we're, we're not, this is not judgmental. We're not looking at you from ivory towers wanting to cast stones at you. Instead, we would say to you, we were once where you are. And the only thing that's good about us is the fact that God in his grace has saved us. We've been forgiven by the acts of Jesus. That what he did for us, he offered us freely. And by his grace, he led us to receive. And so I would just ask you today that if you're here today and you're lost, you've never crawled inside this word, them, I would just ask you to turn from your sin and trust him, to put your faith in him and to believe in the same way that you simply are resting in that chair and and just trusting it to hold you, that in the bigger things of one day having to face God, that you would put yourself squarely in the lap of Jesus and that you would trust him him and his finished work to hold you and to make you fit and ready for that day. In just a minute, I'm going to walk down here and I'm going to 
sit down on this front row, and uh, Ethan's going to lead us to sing in response, and uh, I'll stand when he asks everyone else to stand. I'm not going to come back up and turn and face back and look at you, but if you're here today and, and you know you're lost, and you've never seen this love like this, but today it became clear to you, and I would love for you to come and, and talk to me. We don't have to make it this big ordeal where where you come and I'm, I'm trying to hurry you through this so that I can just present you to this church. That's not what, not, what, not what it's about. Instead, what I would have you to do is to come and let's begin this conversation. And if today, today you turn from your sin and trust Christ, then I will celebrate with you. And we will begin to pair some people up with you so that you can know how to walk from here and what this means from here, how to follow Christ. But you've got to take that first step. You've got to take that, that, that act of turning from your sin and trusting Him. Just as those in the crowd that day were not instantly forgiven, but had to one day turn from their sin and trust Him. Just as the soldier there at, that, at the foot of the cross, when the blood hit him, said, surely this was the Son of God. And today, you've got to turn from your sin and trust Him. Repentance and faith. If I can help you with that, I would love to do that. If you're here today and, and you've just been hit again and this wall of wave of love of God has just hit you again and knocked you down and you are rolling along the bottom of the floor of His grace, then today, worship, respond in this song as we sing. Maybe you're here today and this is the day and this is the church where God says, this is the church I want you to be a part of and you want to join this church, I'll also be here. I'd love to talk with you. If there's something going on that you need to talk with someone, I'd be glad to do that. I'd love to pray with you. Whatever it is that God leads you to do, then today, don't harden your hearts. Turn to Him. Follow His leading. He has loved you. He's done everything necessary for you to be forgiven and made whole and right. So trust Him today. This time of teaching is brought to you by Abner Creek Baptist Church. For more information, visit www.abnercreekbaptist.com.